there is a library that exists at the nexus where all other universes collide. Inevitably, things wind up there by mistake. Books, artifacts, people. This is the place where things from all universes end up when they get lost. This is the Eternity Archives. Hi, welcome to the Eternity Archives, an actual play podcast where we take on the role of archivists working for an interdimensional library that catalogs and protects the fabric of reality. As archivists, we are tasked with journeying out into the realms, taking on characteristics of people from that reality, and remedying whatever issues may be causing a disturbance in the dimension. Every arc will be playing a different RPG, maybe even returning to systems we like later on, but this is a fun way for us as players and you as listeners to explore and learn about different tabletop systems. We'll discuss the roles, create sheets for our characters, and play a short campaign to get a feel for the game. Afterwards, we'll do a bit of discussion. We'll talk about what we liked and didn't like and what we'd know to do better next time. In this episode, we're starting 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. We'll discuss some basic rules and roll up our characters. If you're pretty familiar with 5e, this will all seem pretty familiar to you. This is the first time you're hearing from us, though, so let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm Kite, and my pronouns are they, them. Uh, most of my tabletop experience is with 5e, though I've also GM some Monster of the Week. And just as a whole, I really like the Powered by the Apocalypse rule set, so you'll probably be seeing lots of that from me when I get to be the tabletop dad. Hi, I'm Ziva, and my pronouns are she, her. My tabletop experience has been largely D&D, um, although I've played a few different editions and I've played a few different modules in different universes. I'm really excited to experience everything that the tabletop world has to offer. I'm particularly interested in trying Monster of the Week, Shadowrun, and the 13th Age. And I'm Dorka. My pronouns are she, her. I've played a variety of tabletop games, including Dungeons & Dragons, Savage Worlds, Blades in the Dark, and a few others. I'll be the GM for this game, or the anchor, as we'll be calling it on this podcast. We'll be rotating for every system, though, so each of us will have our opportunities to play and to run the game. Now, we're about to talk about the rules and mechanics of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. If you know the game pretty well, we're not likely to cover anything you've heard before. If you want to skip ahead to when we start talking about our characters, that starts at about 28 minutes and 50 seconds. But if you want to stick around, I think we have some pretty cool stuff to say. So first of all, Kite and Ziva, how would you explain a tabletop role-playing game to someone who has never played one before? Uh, I would say a tabletop role-playing game. It's like creating a story with your friends and you use dice and sometimes the dice will fuck you over. Uh, But I guess there are actually tabletop systems that don't use dice. I don't know how those work, but I know they exist. Maybe we'll find out sometime. Yeah. Yeah, I think that really hits the nail on the head. It's really collaborative storytelling. And there can be um, everything from a ton of structure, like a grid, and you're moving miniatures around the board, and you're playing much more like uh, like a video game where you just move the pieces manually instead of the computer doing it, to things that are really freeform and narrative and are a chance, you know, a chance to, to get to write a whole story in a universe and these characters with your friends. 
Uh, but I think really it's uh, tabletop games are collaborative and they're sometimes relatively chance-based. But uh, at the end of the day, if you're playing them with friends around a table and you're role-playing, that pretty much covers it. Yeah, I think that is um, kind of an important thing to sort of uh, highlight is that it, it is definitely collaborative storytelling and then some game systems will probably be more crunchy than others and also just depending on the group like some groups are more mechanics focused and other uh groups might be more role-playing narrative focused and yeah as Ziva said it's if you have fun doing it with your friends then you know that's all that really matters I'm glad you guys had good answers to that because someone asked me that question once and I just completely choked (laughs) (laughs) when I go to sleep I just stare up at the ceiling like what is tabletop role-playing? And then I just meditate on it for five hours and I haven't <laughs> slept in in years. You just trance like an elf. Yeah, exactly. Without <laughs> any of the perks. <laughs> All right. So Dungeons and Dragons in particular has been around in one form or another since 1974 and has essentially become synonymous with tabletop gaming. It's gone through a few revisions over the years, with the 5th edition being published by Wizards of the Coast in 2014. Since then, we've been in a bit of a D&D renaissance. More people are playing than ever. There's a boatload of rich fantasy lore surrounding the D&D brand, and you can find tons of books, games, and even a few movies about it. But I think one of my favorite things about the game is that you don't need to know any of it. It's true. I don't know shit about D&D lore. I tried to read the Eberron rulebook and got lost like two paragraphs in. But you know what? Warforged are neat. <laughs> I think it really speaks to how pervasive and important D&D has been for nerd culture about how how much familiarity you have with D&D even if you think you don't. Like, you might not know the ins and outs of Faerun, but you've probably heard of Neverwinter before if you have, like, played a video game. And you've probably heard of Baldur's Gate before, and there's a lot of D&D inspiration in video games and pop culture and tabletop, obviously. And so, you know, I think it really speaks to D&D's staying power. But also, D&D is really flexible. If you like fantasy stuff, you can basically take whatever edition you want and totally build around it. Or you can use the uh, modules that it comes with, the standard Wizards of the Coast modules, which are also, you know, really good and contain a lot of that familiar high fantasy dragons and spell casting and cool swords and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for half my life now, and I've never actually played a campaign in the traditional Dungeons and Dragons setting. They've always been like original settings, original fantasy worlds. Okay, so that actually reminds me, my brother, you know, I guess this must have been like 3 or 3.5 because this was how long ago it was. I was like in grade school and it reminded me he was running a one-on-one campaign where he was a DM and I was playing and I am a scaredy cat. I'm just scared of everything and I entered a house and like furniture started floating around or something or like doors started closing like you know by themselves and I got scared and I I didn't want to play anymore (laughs) we didn't even get like five minutes into the campaign before I was like you know what no this this scares me but look at where I am now hopefully this game isn't too scary for you oh we'll see I don't know it's not it's (laughs) it's a low bar Yeah, my uh, my earliest tabletop experience was playing the 3.0 starter set with my dad, and he uh, DM'd a game for my sister and I. But that's so cute, though. Because <laughs> he grew up playing it. 
so yeah we had the the really intense starter set with the grid and with all the little um, punch out tokens of like displacer beasts and gelatinous cubes and stuff and there was a really big one of a dragon and um, I wasn't very good at it because I was eight um, but I did really <laughs> enjoy it so I have very fond feelings for Dungeons and Dragons in particular there are a lot of different ways that people play Dungeons and Dragons and that's, I think, part of why it's so intimidating for a lot of people just getting started is there are a ton of rules. There are these huge rule books with all these different numbers and tables. We are going to be playing a much more, I guess, story-based, roleplay-based version of the game. Uh, all of the roles and the numbers are there, but it's much less complicated. And I think that's a strength of 5th edition D&D specifically. But there are some people who, when they play Dungeons and Dragons, they roll dice to see randomly what monsters they're fighting, and then they roll dice to see randomly what loot they get. Basically rolling dice for everything to see what their character does at all times. We're not going to get quite that detailed. I think that's a really good summary of the different play types. And I think that it's definitely one of the huge strengths and diving into the additions of D&D is like a massive undertaking. And so, so it's definitely more nitty gritty than we're going to get into um, for this particular episode. But some of the older ones in particular were really um, rules heavy and really focused on basically simulating combat as accurately as possible, which is a totally valid type of role play. But it can tend to bog you down in the combat um, as opposed to letting you focus more on the story. Um, so for what we want to do, 5e is a great fit. Um, there's lots of, of different ways to play even 5e. So yeah, we're going to be hanging more on the uh, storytelling side and less on the how many feet is it across this chasm you know roll to make sure you get a running start and then roll to jump and then roll to make sure you <laughs> land safely and those are all things you can do if you want to but uh, they're not a great fit for us yeah and just also because this is a audio uh, medium and we're going to be obviously using theater of the mind because we can't show you graphs through audio we could try but it'd be very boring to listen to so the nitty-gritty kind of aspect of D&D just also would not be uh translated well as a podcast but it is still very fun if you decide to go that route with your friends like playing on a grid and doing distance and all that stuff that stuff's super fun and really awesome, uh, but not the most interesting to listen to, I think, in a podcast. <laughs> I would definitely agree. So I think maybe let's dive into a little bit more of the, the specifics. I know we've hinted at things like dice rolls. Uh, yeah, so the most common mechanic you're going to find in any Dungeons & Dragons game, no matter how you're playing, is the dice roll. D&D uses a 20-sided die, or a d20, for almost everything. Whether you're attacking an enemy, trying to persuade someone to help you, or disarming a trap, you're rolling a d20. Usually when you make a roll, there's a number you're trying to beat, known as the difficulty check. Your character's skills and abilities will add or subtract to your roll. So if your character is good at persuasion, for example, they'll always have a higher chance at success than someone who isn't. A really good just like rule of thumb that's really useful about difficulty is that the rough like algorithm that you're supposed to use, or a rule of thumb, is that 10 is an easy check. So something with a difficulty class of 10 would be relatively easy to do. 15 is a moderate and 20 is really, really hard. So when you hear someone roll like a 12, that's a good like thing to keep in mind. That can be also a nice tool if you are the anchor. 
So something I found interesting when I was actually looking through the rules were um, natural ones and natural 20s. So when you're actually rolling skill checks outside of combat, that's things like persuasion, animal handling, there's not actually a rule for natural 20s and natural ones. I think that's a common misconception that like if you roll a natural 20, that's a guaranteed success. And if you roll a natural one, that's a guaranteed failure. Though there are certainly people who do play it that way, who do reward you for that luck, but it's not actually a written rule in the guidebook. That's pretty interesting. Um, Cause you said in slash out of combat, I guess like that you specifically mean for like attack rolls is only when like nat 1 or nat 20 would be in effect right like even if you're in combat like making a persuasion check it's not like oh yeah now a nat 1 or nat 20 would like apply to that persuasion check just because you're in combat right right it's just the attack rolls but even attack rolls um a natural 20 is usually a crit but a natural one is not anything specifically negative wait is there no rule about crit fails no there's no rule for crit fails in 5e what? Oh, I actually didn't Damn. know that. That's kind of crazy. I think it's usually house-ruled. Okay. A house rule for anyone who doesn't know is basically you're allowed to make up your own rules in Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, something that, like, I guess when you mentioned Nat 20s is, um, this is more of, like, an interesting guideline that I always like to keep in mind is, like, if you are, like, a level one character who is trying to, like, pick up a 5,000-pound boulder or whatever, and you roll a nat 20, the DM doesn't necessarily have to be like, okay, yeah, by, like, the power of the gods, you fucking pick that shit up and yeet it across the, the field. You know, it could just be, like, you managed to push it a little bit, and that's about as good as you're gonna get, because it's, like, a wild success based on, like, the parameters of your current character. But obviously that that is, of course, up to DM discretion. And I found that this is a very contentious thing for DM <laughs> really? players. This is DM discourse? <laughs> yes, this is a real, this is, there's real discourse around whether a natural 20 should be an automatic success or not. Oh no, please, please don't at me. I did not mean to start discourse. <laughs> <laughs> don't cancel me. But ultimately, just play with players who feel the same way you do about it. <laughs> like it, it, you always it, it, you always want to play with players who are going to have the same fun as you yeah it's okay to play D D in a vacuum it's fine you know just like <laughs> n nothing else exists it's just you and your buds just having a good time and i think that actually um is one of the huge strengths of tabletop role playing in general to like circle back real quick which is that, yeah, you can basically do what you want. Um, it's not like a board game where, you know, if you change the rules, it can really, really screw it up. A lot of the balance is the balance that you and your friends create, which means that you can kind of handle it how you want. If you want everyone to have amazing God-defying powers or you want a universe that's really random and chaotic, you can do that. Have fun. I do like to reward people who are natural 20s in ways that make sense. And uh, crit fails will probably happen according to what is funniest. Oh no, that's the way I like it. <laughs> that's how I live my life. <laughs> that works for me. Okay, so moving on. When you create your character, you determine values for their abilities and skills. Abilities are broad categories. So strength represents your physical ability. Dexterity is agility and movement. Constitution measures endurance and fortitude. Intelligence and wisdom might sound like the same thing on their face, but intelligence refers more to reasoning and memorization 
while wisdom is more of a measure of perception and insight. Charisma represents the force of your personality, how much you can get people to like you or listen to you. So while you will occasionally have to make roles based on these abilities, you're more likely to use skills instead. Skills are more specific, things like persuasion, animal handling, or nature, representing knowledge that a character has honed over time due to their background or their class. So the best way to remember the difference between intelligence and wisdom is something that probably everyone has heard at this point, which is that intelligence is knowing tomato is a fruit and wisdom is knowing it doesn't go in a smoothie. (laughs) Uh, Only if you're a coward. (laughs) Yeah. Anything can go in a smoothie if you're brave enough. <laughs> uh, actually, there that is something I do want to touch on is insight versus perception. Because I think, especially if you're starting and you're a beginner, that can be kind of like, well, what, what's the difference? Perception is kind of like your awareness of your surroundings. Whereas insight is more looking into a person's demeanor or their personality or like sensing their intent. I guess perception is like looking around a room and realizing like, oh no, oh shit, there's a trap. Yes. And insight is like psychology. Yes, 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 yes. But also every skill is governed by an ability. So like if you have a high strength, the skills that depend more on strength will be easier for you, even if you're not proficient in it. I'm going to be honest, I know we're teaching people how to play D&D. I don't entirely know the mechanical definition for proficiency, just that it's like something you get like a higher number in as you level up and you can like add that to your roles, essentially. Yeah, let me let me try and remember. So the way it used to work in some of the older D&Ds is that you would get levels per your skill. So every time you level up, you put like points into a skill, which is more like, I don't know how, like something like Skyrim works, which can get really easily bogged down. And it also makes it hard to get good at a lot of different skills because you're putting like all your ranks into a skill or into like two or three skills every time you level up. And leveling up in D&D can take a while, especially depending on who's GMing. And so the way that D&D 5th edition does it is it has proficiency, which is basically you get a bonus to certain skills you're good at, and then that bonus scales based on, I think, your level. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So basically, you can choose skills that you're particularly good at, and I think you can choose more skills over time, and you get stronger at the skills you're good at over time. So instead of being like, I took four skills or four skill ranks in like climbing, you're like, I'm just athletic. As a person, I am athletic. I want a proficiency in athletics. And then the stronger you get, the stronger you get at everything, including athletics. Yeah. So proficiency, I guess, basically is your favored skills. So you choose them when you're making your character. Like, these are the things that I am good at. That is much more sensible than my ramble. Well, I think it's good to like look into the history of it, too, and compare it to what used to be. In the old days, when we walked uphill both ways to get better at rope climbing or whatever. Oh, and well, in the old days where your intelligence determined how many skill points you got and how many things you could be good at. Oh, that's gross. See, that makes me think of like, I think KOTOR, which is the Star Wars RPG Knights of the Old Republic, and that's like kind of a adaptation of 3.5. That just reminds me of like, because like the best kind of like cheesing build would basically be like, you put all your stuff into like dexterity and strength and you don't really use intelligence. So you just like have no skill points to put in anything and you're just like, yes, I am a Jedi and I swing my sword very fast. Blah, 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 blah. Um, And that's how you beat the game, by wooming the fastest. 
So I think having the proficiency that scales by level gives you a little more freedom to sort of build your character how you want instead of feeling like you have to have a certain value in intelligence so that you can have all the skills you want to have. Yeah, it was really frustrating when like you didn't have any like skill ranks and healing because it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense for my character, but like somebody needs to heal. Like (laughs) someone in the group has to be able to heal somebody. And it was like really frustrating as opposed to like being able to do some kind of healing regardless. So there's a lot more flexibility. And I think that brings up a good point is even if you're not proficient in something in fifth edition, you can still try to do it. Whereas I think in 3.5, there were certain skills that if you did not have skill ranks in it, you couldn't even attempt them. Yeah, and that was, that makes progression a lot more difficult. Yeah, it's kind of a good representation of life. Like, for example, uh, my character has a as negative in charisma, so all their skill checks that are charisma-based are negative. And so they could try to lie to someone. They'd be horrible at it, but they can still do it. Like, it's a free country in Faerun. <laughs> like, you could be like, yes, uh, that is my mansion over there. I am the mayor. And then they'd look at you and just be like, you, you're wrong. You're, you are definitely not the mayor. You, there's a statue of the mayor right next to you, and it's not you. So moving on, combat is a significant part of any D&D game, and probably the most complicated part. Fortunately, it's less complicated than it looks. If it seems a little overwhelming here when we're talking about it, just listen to the play portion later, and I promise you'll get the hang of it right away. So first of all, D&D combat is turn-based. Everyone involved gets to take their turn before the first person gets to go again. You start combat by rolling initiative, which is, again, a d20. Initiative is representative of your reaction time, so it's modified by your dexterity. So if you have high dexterity, if you're a fast, agile person, you're more likely to be able to go earlier in the turn order. So the DM will put everyone in order from highest to lowest initiative, and this does include whatever you're fighting. So your turn is made up of three main parts, movement, an action, and a bonus action. You can do all of these, and you can do them in any order. Movement is exactly what it sounds like. You can move towards an enemy or away from them. You can get up if you've been knocked down. You can even split this up if you want. You can do some of your movement at the beginning of your turn and some of your movement at the end of your turn. Your character has a base speed, usually 30 feet per round, and as long as you don't move more than that, you can do whatever you want with it. Your action is the part of your turn where you usually attack, or if you're a magic user, cast a spell. After you choose your target, you'll roll a d20 and add any relevant modifiers to the roll. If you roll higher than your enemy's armor class, you hit. If you roll lower, you miss. Spellcasting is a little more complicated. Different classes use different abilities to cast spells, and the enemy usually makes an opposing roll instead of just using their flat armor class. We'll definitely go into it more during the actual play portion of the podcast. And then there are bonus actions, which are more situational. Some are spells, and some are character abilities. If you ever see something that says, as a bonus action, that's what this means. There are like some heal spells where you do it as a bonus action, or a secondary attack that you do as a bonus action. But you can't take another main attack as your bonus action. I do want to specify that this is a very general overview of combat, and like Dorka said, there are lots of exceptions. So rules lawyers, don't add us. Because we'll get to it, I promise, <laughs> if it if it becomes a thing. Yeah, we're we're definitely gonna be doing this the easy way. Yes. Yes. 
there was something I wanted to address. Um, when you attack, as Dorka mentioned, lower than armor class means you miss, higher means you hit, and also if it's a tie, whoever is initiating the attack will win the tie. So kind of the basic mnemonic is meets beats. Tie goes to the attacker. Yes. So there are also things you can do, like actions don't have to be an attack. There are things like you can prepare an action, you can do a, if someone attacks you, you can do a reaction. All of that is a little more, um, a little more crunchy, as Kite would say, and basically isn't important for you to need to know right away. It also helps, um, at least when I play D&D, I have like a little cheat sheet that is basically like, here are all the actions you can take. Here are all the bonus actions. Here are your reaction options. Uh, and then here's status effects. And that just helps me be like, kind of remember what I can and cannot do. Because yeah, there's a lot. And unless you play D&D like enough to have it be like, um, unless you can play D&D on autopilot, then it, it's probably good to just have that on hand to remember what you can and cannot do. Yeah, absolutely. And luckily, um, I use um, D&D Beyond for my character sheets that are in, you know, D&D Classic. And that has a section for bonus actions and reactions, as well as actions in combat that I can do that are other, which is really helpful. Um, They're not paying us. um, This is our first episode. We're definitely not getting paid for this. But uh, it's really useful if you like interactive character sheets. I know there are other websites that do similar things, but this is the one that I use. And the other thing it has that's really helpful talking about combat is it has your spell slots automatically like marked on here. Basically, every character can only do so many spells a day. They can only do so many spells of certain power levels a day just to, you know, stop you from coming into a room and dropping like 100 magical nukes and then walking out, which would definitely um, not be a fun time for anyone, least of all the GM. <laughs> so one of the things that D&D Beyond also does is it helps you track your spell slots so you know how many spells you can use at a given time, which is really helpful if, like me, uh, you always forget to mark them on a physical paper character sheet. And I guess that's the other nice thing about Dungeons and Dragons is you can kind of play as simply or as complex as you want. Like if it's your first time and you just want to play like a character who very straightforwardly just like runs in and hits things like that's totally feasible and can also be very fun. Or you can play a wizard, like a pure spellcasting class, which requires you to know like a lot of different effects and conditions and keywords and can be a little more complicated yeah do you want to have lots of utility and do lots of cool shit and shoot lightning out of your eyeballs or do you just want to run up and hit something four times and do like five thousand damage i mean both very valid there are two wolves inside you one wolf wants to beat the shit out of stuff and the (laughs) other wolf wants to shoot fireballs out of their butt and i support (laughs) both of them You can also play anywhere in between, and the ideal D&D party has a mix of all of the character types, so it's really nice to have someone who hits stuff, and someone who does magic, and someone who does lots of other things. Sneaky stuff, and inspiring stuff, and healing stuff, and all sorts of stuff. I mean, there's lots of lots of different ways to play, and not all of them involve spell slots, but many of them do, if you would like to do that. Well, I think that's another nice thing about 5e is, like, you're not really shoehorned into a certain role based on your class. Like, obviously things like fighter are going to be better at just, like, straight up attacking. 
But even even then, you can have someone who's like a really good swords person, or you can even have a fighter who attacks from range, or you can have a fighter who specializes in defense. So even within each class, you have some freedom of what your role in the party is, and you can be pretty flexible. Yeah, this is not a 90s System Shock style RPG where you level up wrong and then everything kills you forever and then you have to rage quit. I will rage quit this podcast. Uh, (laughs) If uh, I drop even once, I'm leaving. I will throw my mic across the room. Well, then you would have left in the uh, practice session, wouldn't you? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) This is harassment and I'm suing you. <laughs> I only take legal threats in the form of uh gifs in triplicate. <laughs> if you send me three of the same gif, then I'll be like, "Oh shit, I better call my lawyer." Uh, I'm challenging you to a a a gif off. Gif off. Is that something else we need to debate? Is that Oh, a, is it gif or discourse? gif? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't do this. I do this in my marriage all the time. I can't do it with my friends. <laughs> It's, we're halfway through the intro episode and we're already falling apart. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <right>. so <laughs> let's, let's talk about characters. Okay. So before we get into creating our character sheets, uh, since this is our first episode, let's tell everyone a bit about our characters. We're going to be using the same characters in every game, slotting them into every system we play. So you'll be getting pretty familiar with them as people. Uh, so to clarify, right now we're not talking about specifically their roles in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, but just our basic character archetypes, their personalities, their aspirations, hopes and dreams. Maybe not that complicated. Bold of you to assume that my character is a person and not just garbage incarnate. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, about my garbage? Fantastic. Yes, uh, my character is from a modern fantasy setting where there are lots of D&D characteristics present, but their societal structure and day-to-day lives and amenities are more aligned to like our IRL experiences and uh, what we normies call Earth. And so uh, their name is Rill de Drakel. Rill is the baby of the group, fresh-faced at the ripe old age of 21. They are a feral tiefling, and most importantly, they have little little baby rammy horns and also a tail and cool wings hidden by magic. Rill is, as I mentioned, not a person, but garbage incarnate and also a huge dork. And they prefer to stay inside and play video games. And they're very socially awkward, but under the oversized baggy hoodies and chip bag wrappers and soda cans and uh, lack of recycling is a good heart. You know, like morally speaking, medically speaking, it's kind of inconclusive. Uh, Though they could probably stand to play some more Ring Fit Adventure. They bought it and they were like, yes, I'm going to be the healthiest version of myself. And no, they they didn't. That that might be a call-out post for myself as well, but you'll never know. I'm in this picture and I don't like it. <laughs> oh, and I guess one thing I wanted to ask. Um, Real, are you like tiefling colored? What color are you? Oh, they, okay, so their hair is kind of like a medium length, kind of like messy bedhead hair, and it's like a dark purple. And they have like kind of orangish golden eyes and their skin's like a light purple and then their tail's probably like more of a darker purple that matches like their hair color cool so my character is named Keskianar Zenzora generally known to her friends and everyone else as Zen 
She's a seven-foot-tall lizard woman who has fully embraced the art of punching things until they fall down. Despite this, she's actually very personable, very friendly, and pretty much up for anything. Scalies and monster fuckers, this one's for you. Zen originates from a setting very much like Dungeons & Dragons, uh, probably a homebrew setting, with little technology and lots of magic, though she herself is lacking in magical ability. Zen has been at the library for a while, probably two or three months, but has only recently started doing archivist work. She's taken it all in stride, even if she doesn't necessarily understand how any of it works, and she doesn't miss her home at all. Just in case my mom's listening to this, I'm sorry that somebody said monster fuckers. Oh no! <laughs> I'm so sorry, Ziva's mom. Yeah, I'm so I'm sorry I said something about a wolf shooting fireballs out of its ass. <laughs> and I'm sorry for mentioning it again just now. I'm rating this podcast not safe for Ziva's mom. NFSZM. So um, on that note, um, my character that I'm going to be playing is named Linda Baumgartner. Linda is a classic office lady, so she's really cheerful, she's warm, um, and she's well-liked by everyone. She's just a relatively friendly and inoffensive person. She is a middle-aged human woman from plain old Earth, the same Earth you and I are on right now, presumably, who loves cats and good old-fashioned happy hour. She is stout and short with a wide smile and a mess of curly blonde hair. She loves meeting new people, and uh, she's definitely one of those people who would describe herself as a hugger. If you're one of her favorites, she will always have your favorite baked good on hand. She'll bend over backwards to drive you to the airport or, uh, you know, meet you after work for a couple drinks and a chat. Um, if you get on her bad side, though, watch out for Linda. She has a knack for gossip, and she always has a way of making things turn out the way she wants them to. She's only been at the library for a few weeks, but in that time, she's made a ton of friends, and she's also learned a lot of secrets. Um, she really misses some stuff from Earth, like feeding the stray cats outside of her apartment, and Garfield comics, and um, her sister and her nephew. Um, but she's actually really excited to be in the library because she has a ton of new stuff to explore and a ton of new people to meet. Yeah, Rill does go up to Linda and is like, hey, there's a, there, there's a new game coming out. Can you drive me to the GameStop? I don't have my license yet, and I want the cool pre-order edition. And Linda would totally drive you to the GameStop. She'd be ready for it. Excellent. I like how Linda just, or maybe not Linda adopted Rill as much as Rill has slotted themselves into being adopted by Linda. <laughs> it's both. Yeah, like a cat that just like wanders into your yard and just comes comes every day and then it's just like, well, I guess I have a cat now. <laughs> yeah, that's 100% Linda. Uh, yes, that's 100% how Linda would do it. Linda posts a picture of Rill on Instagram just like in the laundry basket. Like, this is not my cat. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, what, what's that one meme where the onions get knocked off the counter and it's like, you. who did this to my onions? You! <laughs> so yeah, I don't think there's a uh, GameStop in the library, but whatever new game you want probably just like appears, appears in your collection. Speak Dude. it unto the void and thus the void will deliver. Absolutely, <laughs> fuck yes. Better than Amazon Prime and also does not support uh, corrupt corporate businesses. <laughs> We're not getting paid by Amazon Prime either, and we never will be. <laughs> nope, never. I will take a I will take a Casper mattress though. Hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some me undies. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to take these characters and apply them to the Dungeons and Dragons character sheets. Character creation in Fifth Edition seems complicated because there is a lot of it. There are tons of options and ways to play, as we've kind of discussed already. 
but the three main details are probably race, class, and background. Race is pretty self-explanatory. It's whether you're an elf, a human, a gnome, etc. Each race gives you different attribute bonuses and unique abilities. Class is really the big one. It's basically your character's combat archetype and determines some of the skills you have and how you fight. Each class offers different abilities, and as you level up, you get more of these and develop a unique playstyle. You also have a lot of choices within your class. Your background gives you skills and abilities based on your character's backstory. The abilities your background grants you are used more for roleplay than for combat, and it just kind of adds a nice bit of flavor to the game. So let's start with that. Tell me a little bit about the races and backgrounds you've chosen for Rill and Linda. Yeah, so for Rill, kind of funny, I actually had a, a bit of difficulty picking stuff for Rill because as I mentioned, they're kind of like a NEET, NEET as an N-E-E-T acronym, not in employment, education, or training, which is a lie because they are a college student, but they're kind of like a hermit, which actually there is a background for that, so I picked hermit, um, but yeah, they like to stay inside and play video games a lot, and unsurprisingly, there is not a class that fits that in 5e. You know, who would have thought that in order to adventure and kill monsters, you, you have to go outside. <laughs> so I picked just what I thought would be cool for them. They are a horizon walker ranger and so they get to shoot bows and arrows and they're kind of a soft frail child so they are not really the type to go up into the mix and as a horizon walker they uh i thought would be very fitting for our game since we're kind of like dimension hopping reality hopping uh fixer uppers and so there's kind of uh skills and whatnot that are attributed to that characteristic as well and as I mentioned, they have the Hermit background, which does give me something. It gives me proficiency in one of my skills. I want to say it's medicine or religion. I can't remember off the top of my head. But yeah. Was there anything I didn't uh, I didn't cover? Well, you mentioned earlier that Rilla is a tiefling, but what does that mean for Dungeons & Dragons? What sort of special abilities does that give you? Okay, yeah, definitely. Um, so specifically, they are a feral tiefling. Um, which is a kind of sub-race of tiefling. Tieflings have lots of different flavors you can kind of attribute to them because I believe like the canon lore for tieflings is they are like descended from fiends or something and so there's actually different tiefling types based on like what fiend you've descended from. Who's your daddy? Yeah, based on who my daddy is. I, I don't know, I guess my daddy was feral because I didn't pick a specific fiend they that Rill is descended from. But as a feral tiefling, I do have some cool neat little bits Abilities. I get Thaumaturgy, I get a Hellish Rebuke, which is super neat because I get to cast it at a second level spell slot, even though I don't have any second level spell slots, and that's just that's just free real estate, baby! So that's super cool, and I think technically the wings are an ability that Feral Tieflings can have, but I just have it for flavor because I want cool anime wings because I too am a weeaboo nerd dork. And I fully support you in that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I just want to be anime as fuck. That's all I want. This is this is my fantasy wish fulfillment, okay? 
I'll go ahead and dive a little bit into Linda and what I did for her. So the background I chose for Linda was Folk Hero, just because she is a, you know, a relatively common person um, and she gets along well with everyone, which basically means that other people who are commoners can let us um, hide with them or rest with them if we need to. They won't fight for us, but they will help us, you know, recuperate for a little bit if we need some downtime. I chose to be a stout halfling, which is a subtype of halfling. So she's short and stout and hardy, basically. Part of being a stout halfling is that she has a defense against poison, which is kind of cool. She's lucky, she's brave, and she's nimble, um, which basically means that I have the ability to re-roll when I roll a crit fail. I have some advantage on saving throws against being frightened, and I can go through small spaces, which is cool. I also chose a bard for Linda, which not because she necessarily is like super music heavy as an archetype, but because it's a really charisma heavy build. And since Linda's all about making friends and talking with people and learning stuff and insight, basically, she is charisma heavy. So as a bard, she plays music, she inspires others. She's part of the school of lore of bards, which basically means that, that she can be extra extra smart. She uses big words and can really, really inspire people or um, or bum them out. So uh, in particular, there's too many like bards, spells, and stuff to go through, but um, she can fight two-handed, which is pretty cool. She has something called bardic inspiration, which basically means that she can pump up other people around her. She has something called cutting words that basically means she can neg uh, monsters into being upset, <laughs> which I think is great. I'm really looking forward to using that. She can call you a simp and then you feel really bad about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, she's got lots of different ways to call monster simps. Um, <laughs> and she can also do stuff like healing and some of what we would consider like traditional spells as well. But the healing and the special bard stuff I think is really cool. Because she's a bard, another thing she can do is when she wants to cast a spell, rather than having to have like certain ingredients, she can just use her instrument to like focus her magical energy. So Linda has a dulcimer that she can play to like do magic, which is going to be fun. I also went and got proficiency in perception and persuasion. So she's able to like really pay attention to what's going on around her. And she's also really able to easily persuade people. Also something else cool as a bard is that I have plus one to basically any skill of any sort, which makes life a lot easier for some of these things that I didn't take ranks in like medicine. So that's like a long rambling way to say Linda's a bard because she loves talking to people and she's a stout halfling because she's short and stout as a person. I do have a question for you, Siva. When you were considering uh, Linda's class, did it ever occur to you as a, you know, wanting her to be charisma based to be a warlock with a Garfield patron? <laughs> <laughs> I did think about going in a more magic direction, um, but uh, personally, I've never played a bard. And so I was really excited about that. And um, I also find magic heavy builds tend to move a little slow or magic, you know, exclusive builds tend to move a little slow. But I really wish I thought of the Garfield patron. That's such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> what is like the OP cheesy thing that people do is they, they multi-class into like a Hexblade Warlock for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. So you could multi-class and then into Garfield Gar Warlock. Yes. Yeah. Just, just one, yeah. you know, you just need like one level or whatever, just to get the Hexblade perk, and then yeah, uh, you're good. And it's yeah. like, yes, Garfield, Garfield is channeled through me, and he just called you a simp. <laughs> um. <laughs> 
Okay, so Zen is going to be the anchor today, meaning I'm going to be running the game and not playing it. So Zen is not going to go on this adventure with Rill and Linda, but I will talk a little bit about if she was. Uh, I think the closest race we have to her would be a lizard folk, which is a really cool D&D race, and I definitely want to play a lot more of them. They're good at swimming, they can bite people, they have a special attack where they can bite someone and gain temporary hit points from eating them, basically. Just all, all very That's cool. That's just called vor. I don't think it's vor if you die from it. Oh. We're not going to get into that here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, NFSZM. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, and uh, she would be a barbarian, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's exactly what it sounds like. They hit things really hard. And barbarians have the class feature where they can go into a rage, which is basically they have advantage on strength checks, they do extra damage, and they have resistance to damage for a short period of time. For her background, I took the noble background, because where she comes from, she's actually a little bit of a princess. It's a long story. But I think that's one of the cool things about 5th edition, is you can be a barbarian and a noble, and have sort of these backstory details that you can combine in all sorts of cool ways. But the, the noble background basically just gives you some like extra starting money and extra skills. And I think you have a uh, like a retainer. You can have someone, an NPC, that does your bidding for you. They can't fight for you, but they can like do chores. That's your simp. God, I hate that word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the totem you picked? Uh, I didn't actually take a totem. That is not her primal path. Her primal path would be Path of the Berserker. Oh, okay. That, that, sorry, that's what I meant by the subclasses. Yeah. yeah. Because she is not proficient in magic, and Path of the Berserker is just more, more rage, more damage, more hitting. So Zen is kind of like the uh, meme of Princess Daisy looking at Princess Peach being like, aren't you tired of being nice? Don't you just want to go ape shit? <laughs> and that, that's <laughs> That's Zen. <laughs> kind of. I think I think uh, I realized this when I was making the character and writing up her backstory and stuff. I didn't do this intentionally, but basically she's Scorpia from the new She-Ra. <laughs> and Scorpia's my favorite. Yeah, Scorpia's just, the best. Just this, this big girl who will fuck you up, but also wants to be your friend. One thing I didn't mention is that we're all starting at level 3 today. Level 1 characters are just starting out and don't really have a lot of distinction, but at level 3 each class gets starts getting to make some serious choices about the how they're going to play. So the Horizon Walker, the uh, Bard College, the Barbarian Primal Path, those are all specializations you don't get until level 3. So that's why we're we're playing at level three today, just because it'll be a little more interesting and show you guys a little bit more variety in playstyle. Let's talk about like leveling up and like when you get to level up and how experience might work. Yeah, so there's two ways in D&D that you can level up. One is experience point based, which is, um, you know, typically what you think of when you think of like role playing games, like in terms of video games which is basically when you kill a monster, you get points. When you successfully do certain actions, you get points. When you get enough points, you can level up. But the other way to do it is to do it based on milestones. 
So for example, um, you don't get any points when you are working through the campaign. You don't get points for killing goblins. You don't get points for jumping over stuff. You don't get points for, um, you know, successfully, you know, hiding your true intentions. But you do get points at the end when you finish a particular um, chunk of the campaign. So you might get points not for, you know, fighting all the goblins to get to the dragon, but you get points when you've defeated the dragon and finished that part of the campaign. Um, And I believe that's what we're going to be doing, correct? Yeah, we probably won't, like, deal with leveling up mid-campaign, but usually when I'm running a game, especially when we're just starting out in the first few sessions, basically at the end of a session, I'll have all of my characters level up. And then, like, later into the story, like, every time a big event happens or the characters hit, like, a crucial plot point uh, around that time, those are the milestones that I would have my players level up at. So we've talked a little about what makes up our characters, but you might have noticed that there haven't been any numbers yet. Remember those abilities? Well, every character has them. During character creation, you'll settle on a number for each ability, with a 10 being perfectly average and a 20 being damn near superhuman. Something to keep in mind when you're playing D&D is that you're not just an average person, so higher is definitely better. You might recall also that I said your abilities have an effect on your skills, and that comes into play here. I'll use dexterity as an example. If you have 10 dexterity, the average score, you don't get any bonus or penalty, you're right in the middle. But if your dexterity gets to 12, you start seeing those gains. For every two points you get above 10, you get a plus one bonus to every skill that is governed by dexterity, like acrobatics or stealth. This goes all the way up to a plus five bonus for a value of 20. Of course, for every two points below 10, you'll suffer from a negative bonus and actually subtract from any rolls that use dexterity. There are a few different ways to determine abilities, and that will usually be up to your DM, but we'll go over some of them here. Basically, there's a few different ways to generate stats. You can either do dice rolls, or there's the standard array, which I believe is detailed in the either the player's handbook or the DM's guide. I don't have those numbers right off the top of my head, but you can just like assign those to whatever stats you want. And then the more fun way is the dice roll, This, I believe, officially it's 4d6, and you take the highest three, then you add them together, and you do that six times. But there's some different homebrew things people do, like you do 4d6, take the highest three, but you re-roll any ones, and, I mean, I've even seen other people do, like, 5d6 and whatnot. And then there's also point by, which I personally don't have an experience with. With the point by system, what you're going with is basically you have a number of points that you can invest into your skills to get them above average. Um, You have points you can take away from skills to get them below average, which then, of course, gives you more points to spend. This is a really common system that a lot of like video games use where you can choose which particular abilities you want to prioritize over others. So I've looked up the standard array, and for the standard array, it's 15, 14, 13, 12, 10, and 8. And basically you choose which number to put in each ability. And those are basically determined because it's a little lower than the median of if you rolled stats by rolling dice. Yeah, that's kind of like how it is with like HP. Every time you level up, you gain HP to your max. And each class has its own hit dice. For a ranger, it's either a 1d10, or I guess they decided the average was 6. 
You can either play it safe and just add six to your max HP, or you can roll a 1d10. And of course, that means you can also get a one. (laughs) But yeah, if you don't feel like risking it for your stats, standard array is probably the best way to go. Or point by if you want to mess around with that a little bit. But it's always fun to roll dice and be like, yes, look at my my fat stacks. Look at my three sixes. And I got 18 and everything. Chances are that won't happen, but it'd be cool if it did. (laughs) Yeah, Generally, if there's higher risk, there will be higher reward as well. I also think it's more in the spirit of D&D to do the rolling versus the point buy, just because that like random element is definitely one of the things that D&D like really prioritizes and prizes. So it's just kind of fun. I, I definitely agree. It's fun. <laughs> it also depends on like how mean or nice your DM is. So you could you could try to do dice roll. And then if it ends up being like worse than point buy, then maybe some DMs will be like, okay, that's fine. You can do point buy or standard array instead. But then there are some DMs who are like, if you roll, you're sticking with it no matter what it is. Are you sure? Yeah, it's definitely true. And if you're doing the 3d6 method, you're on average going to end up with lower numbers than if you're doing 4d6, three highest. It's always going to be up to your DM ultimately. If you want to do a really hard mode 5e, just like do 3d6 no re-rolls no re-rolling ones uh we we die we die and we play like men (laughs) (laughs) i have a wisdom of three (laughs) you just get killed by uh what is like the weakest dnd monster i don't know a rat (laughs) a rat rocks fall everyone dies yeah you, Yeah. (laughs) uh instead of dungeons and dragons it's rocks and rats and um you don't make it past like level two (laughs) You just die. This is Dark Souls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, rats. Everyone and rocks. rolls a deprived. <laughs> rats and rocks is the uh, Dark Souls of tabletop games. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're writing this. That's uh, that's one of our <laughs> one of our future episodes. Yeah, we're we're not we're ditching the premise of this of this podcast. We're not gonna do new tabletops every arc. We're just doing rats and rocks <laughs> roguelike. Every every arc we start over. <laughs> All right, so we've hinted at it a little bit, but you can, of course, play with these values however you want. The six numbers that you roll, you get to decide which number you put in which ability. However, different abilities will be more advantageous for different classes, so keep that in mind. The D&D Core rulebook has suggestions for each class, so that's a good resource. Another thing to remember is that your race will usually affect one or more of these stats. Elves, for example, are naturally quicker and more agile than humans, and receive a flat bonus to dexterity. So, to wrap up our character creation, Kite and Ziva, why don't you tell me a little bit about your abilities? You don't have to go into every number or how you got them, but give me a little bit about how you chose your highest and lowest, for example. Yeah, for me, I ended up choosing Charisma as one of my higher ones, since Linda is a bard and also, of course, is like as a as an archetypal character, is really charisma heavy. And I chose Dexterity because that's usually suggested for bards as one of their like core skills. The rest of my stats are relatively average, except for Wisdom, which was um, unfortunately my dump stat. Um, which is more just the just the luck of the draw and my choices in terms of not wanting to die horribly in combat, hopefully. It's not necessarily like the best fit for Linda, but there's a little bit of like metagaming going on there of uh, dexterity and strength are more important than wisdom, at least uh, in terms of how I like to do my combat. 
So why are uh, dexterity and charisma important for bards? Well, charisma is really important for bards because they do a lot of charisma skills and performance things. And it's also their uh, spellcasting stat. Yeah, yeah, charisma is their spellcasting stat. And then dexterity is just a better fit with how bards do combat. So for example, the dagger and the rapier, which are the two like default bard weapons, are both finesse weapons, which means that you can roll using dexterity as your attack modifier as opposed to strength. So that adds quite a bit of flexibility to your combat. Cool. Yeah. So for mine... I'm a ranger, so I put my highest stat into dexterity. And then, okay, so my second highest was intelligence and then wisdom and constitution. Uh, My weakest was strength and my dump stat, I think, was charisma. It's actually kind of funny because I think I mentioned earlier when I was making Rill, I was like having a hard time trying to decide which D&D class they would be because they're like, they're not an adventurer. They don't go outside and it's like I pick the class where they're like, dexterous and like hunting in the wilderness i think i might have only picked that because of the horizon walker subclass (laughs) and i was like well that that like fits this like what they're doing now but yeah i i think you know maybe in DD land like favorite specifically they are a dexterous person and then like at the library or like in their own home world not so much they will trip and fall flat on their face i think the low charisma (laughs) is accurate yes uh (laughs) Yeah, Rill definitely has very low charisma, so that is in character. No matter which world, they they don't know how to talk to people. (laughs) But similar to uh, Ziva, for why I put Dex as one of my main stats, is because as a ranger, you're using a lot of finesse weapons, ranged weapons like bows and stuff like that, and those use a dexterity modifier. And also, I do have two daggers on me, which, as she stated, are finesse weapons, so I can use Dex as my modifier for that. I am min-maxing my character for uh, rats and rocks. They're not going to make it very far, though. I'm really thinking about this rats and rocks. I know. Now. I'm like, now we need to do one where we just we just do 3d6 and we just jump into it and do the best we can. <laughs> yeah. Very special episode. Yeah. Maybe that'll be one where we just roll everything oh, on the God. random encounter table. Oh, that'd be great. I would love that. That'd be pretty fun. For the most part, when you're making a character, you kind of want to focus on their main stat as like what their attack or spellcasting stat is. So like sorcerers and warlocks and bards are charisma casters. So generally, if you're like trying to make your characters statistically as best as they can be, you would want to put like charisma as their highest stat for those particular classes. And if you don't really want to like, if you're just doing like a for funsy type of game and it's like your first game or whatever, like don't stress too much about stats. Like you could even just be like, well, roleplay wise, what stats would my character have? Like, like why the fuck does Rill have a higher intelligence and wisdom when that's like, statistically speaking, like not what is best for rangers. But I've even played with people like, as I mentioned, Sorcerer's Charisma stat is their spellcasting stat. And I've had people put it as intelligence. And I would be like, but why? And they're like, I don't know, because I just want to. And I'm like, you know what? That's fair. <laughs> you're, you're valid. <laughs> Every few levels, you will get the opportunity to increase some of your stats. You're not locked in with an eight charisma forever if you don't want to be. Or you can just cheat and just edit the number of your stat sheet, but don't do it when anyone's looking. <laughs> you didn't get that hot tip from me. <laughs> We're very serious role players. That kind of talk will get you put in the rat rock instead of a dungeon, I guess. The rat jail, it's, yeah. 
It's just a just a big <laughs> rock made out of rats. Yeah. Oh God. Take that. <laughs> no. There. You get two options. You get rat jail and you get rock jail. We'll have to iron out the details of this universe later. Yeah. It's it's gonna happen. I think it's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now that we've gotten all of the rules and character stuff out of the way, uh, let's get down to some actual playing. You guys ready? Yeah. yeah, let's go, boys. All right. After weeks in the library, you still haven't quite figured out how it all works. The library's filled with quiet places, but you might find that your favorite reading spot one day is simply not there on another. If you ask your fellow archivists for directions to someplace specific, like the cafeteria or a study room, more often than not, they'll simply shrug, point vaguely, and say, you'll find it eventually. And you always do. You might think that in such a place, it would be easy to get lost, to find a place to yourself, a room tucked out of the way where no one can find you. But apparently, the desire to stay hidden can't quite make up for the desire for somebody else to find you. Which is why Rill will wake up this morning with clawed hands on their shoulders and a toothy reptilian face grinning down at them. Oh god, jeez. Hi, Zen. Uh, good good morning. I, morning? Afternoon? Dusk? Seven feet tall and covered in scales, Zen isn't exactly what one might expect from an archivist. She's not quiet, scholarly, or subtle, but a force of energy and excitement. She wears a thick cloth skirt like something a monk would wear, made so it won't restrict her movement and it lets her tail hang free. Her chest is bare, except for a few leather straps crisscrossing her muscled frame. And there's a sword, of all things, strapped right to her back. God only knows where she found it. And it was definitely an axe the last time you saw her. I've been looking all over for you, she says. Check your journal. We're being sent out. Uh, I don't... I don't even know where I put my journal... Um, and then Rill would kind of, like, get up, groggily, rub their eyes, and then look around, like, trying to find their journal, which is probably, like, glowing and maybe vibrating a bit because they do have a tendency to misplace their, their journal. And it's probably just, like, on a bedside table or something, so they'd, like, grab it and just be like, eh. And then just flip it open, and they're like, oh, oh, uh, okay, where, where are we going? Where, where are we dropping, boys? So you received your journal when you first arrived in the library, but you don't remember anyone ever giving it to you. It's a sturdy book, tightly bound in leather. It is mostly blank, but you have the feeling that it will never run out of pages, no matter how much you write in it. It opens on its own, with a flutter, and though the handwriting seen within is distinctively yours, you were definitely not the one to write it. And inside it says, Extract Unknown Anomaly, Forgotten Realms, Stormhorn Mountains, Contact Zephyrane skull crag what what is an unknown anomaly like could could that be any more vague zen flips through her own journal and just shrugs she doesn't have an answer for you all right uh i guess uh, is it gonna be you and me on the uh on the ground or is it gonna be someone else i don't know yet but uh i think we should get down to the book drop and see what's going on (sighs) okay and then they would get up and find their shoes somewhere. For some reason, there is one shoe, like, on one side of the room, and the other shoe is, like, I don't know, in the bathroom for whatever reason. <laughs> um, so they do definitely, like, walk around trying to find the other shoe. Just, like, one one shoe on, other, other shoe not on, and just, like, uh, just, like, dragging their feet. So eventually, Zen gets Rail dragged down the book drop. 
Normally, the silence here is so heavy you can wrap yourself up in it, but Zen's chatter can be heard echoing throughout the chamber. The most noticeable feature of the book drop is the two towering bookcases, each filled with books seemingly identical to your own journals. Between the two bookcases is an ink-black void, a dark space so abstract that it's difficult to focus your eyes on. Now, Linda would have received the same message in her own journal. Is she already there? She is absolutely already there. She is looking real cute. She's got her favorite blue sweater on. She's got one of those ruffly office lady blouses on. She's got her curls tamed back in a big blue headband. Uh, And she has what definitely look like goodie bags. They're like little little cellophane pouches. She tie little ribbons on them. And there's cookies in there. She baked cookies for you all since you're her favorite people in the library. Aw, Linda's so sweet. Though that does bring up a question. Uh, did Zen wait for Riddle to get dressed after also taking like 10 minutes to find their shoes? Or are they walking out to the book drop in their pajamas? <laughs> <laughs> I think Zen would have let them get dressed. Okay, well then I guess they're wearing actual people clothes. <laughs> That's debatable. <laughs> you know. And then they would, when they see Linda... They'd give like a small wave and then scuffle over and be like, sup. And Linda would definitely turn to Rill and give them a big hug and say, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I like your shirt. Is that a Fortnite? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I got it on sale at, at GameStop, you know, it had a cool pinata on it. Zen has no idea what's being discussed, but she doesn't care. It doesn't phase her. So she finds a big-ass chair and drags it to the center of the room. It's plush and comfortable and large enough for even her to curl up in. She grins at the rest of you and starts flipping through her own journal. And she says, well, obviously, I did the best on our first mission, because it looks like I get to be the anchor this time. I'm, I'm not sure that's how it works. Is it best? I thought we just all got chosen. Uh, I mean, I definitely did not do the best, considering how many times I dropped. Well, there was that eyeball thing, though. That was pretty impressive. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that was on accident, but, you know. And they just stare off in the distance. I think it makes sense, though. This world is a lot like the one I came from. So if you guys get stuck down there, I can probably give you some pointers, talk you through it. Oh, good. That's good. I uh, I don't know a ton about, about this fantasy stuff. I uh, Talking cats is about as wild as I can get. Oh. I've never met a talking cat. Uh, I mean, I've met a talking cat person. I had uh, on the other side of my neighborhood, there was a orange tabaxi named Garfunkel, and he loved pasta. Oh, I'd love to meet him. He sounds nice. Yeah, maybe maybe one day. He, he was a pretty cool guy. He was married to the, the gnome down the street. So as you're talking, Zen is flipping through her journal, which has a little bit more than what you two have in yours. She looks back up at you guys and says, All right, so it looks like, first and foremost, your mission is to find and extract the anomaly. I don't know what that means. I don't have many details, but something's not right down there, and you guys have to go and pull it out. I bet we can figure it out. I bet we can do it, Rill. Uh, yeah, you know, hopefully, probably, yeah. And then they would give, like, a thumbs up, but, like, you can tell that they're just not really, uh, they don't believe. (laughs) 
a page turns in both of their journals and a image appears, a sketch drawing of an aging wild elf with dark brown skin and gray hair. Zen says, all right, it looks like the library has a contact on the ground already. His name is Zephyrane, and his last known location was a small mining town called Skullcrag in the Stormhorn Mountains, so that'll be your point of entry. Uh, As far as I know, wild elves usually keep to themselves, so if anyone has seen him, they'd probably remember. Uh, After that, Rill will just be like, cool, dope, 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 dope. Zephyr, Zephyroth, Zephyrain. Zephyrain. Zephyr, that's why I said Zephyroth. Sounds good. You- you good you good for this, Linda? You ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Oh uh, yeah. And she uh she gives you a pat on the back and hands you hands you a goodie bag full of cookies. And she runs over to Zen and gives her a goodie bag and says, You're gonna do so great. Aww. And uh she gives you a hug and she's ready to roll. Uh it, are there are there nuts in this? There are no nuts. I made sure. I read I read labels or at least, I think I read labels. I did my best. There are no nuts. Yeah, just as you're explaining that, uh, Rill already has a cookie in their mouth. They're just like, well, now, now only God knows what will happen next. And they just give a thumbs up, and they're like, "Fucking dope, as always, Linda." And they and they reach reach out for a fist bump. <laughs> and uh, Linda is totally not sure about fist bumps, so she tries to decide, like, she goes in for, like, a really hesitant high-five against your fist. That's, like, kind of the best she can do, and she just sort of, like, taps it, like, like boop. She doesn't get fist bumps, but she's pumped. She's happy to uh, share some affection that's, with you. Uh, that's a positive turkey, and I will accept this. <laughs> um, and I guess they would, like, shuffle their way over to the portal, I guess? <laughs> so as you make your way over there, Zen holds up a hand and says, stop, wait. And she kind of shuffles around a bit in her chair and pulls out a big bag of stuff that wasn't there before. She looks inside it, nods, and tosses it to Rill. Uh, I don't know if they would catch it. Should I roll? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're not technically in 5e yet, so I don't know if you have appropriate stats for that. Uh, that's true. I mean, like, in 5e, I have plus 4 to my decks, and my saving throw is plus 6, but in in actual world, it's probably, like, a negative 5 or something. So you tell me, does Rill catch it? Oh, absolutely the fuck not. They, they still have cookies. <laughs> they still have cookies in their hands. <laughs> Zen kind of shakes her head, like, should have predicted that. Wait, wait where did you even... Where did that even come from? Like, where, what, where? Oh, is it magic? I don't know, but looks like you guys will need it. Uh, please tell me there's potions, because last time we did not have potions, and I almost died. (laughs) Are you gonna look in the bag? I think Rill would expect Linda to do it, because they have goodie bag and cookie in hand at the moment. (laughs) So, uh, Linda goes over to the bag, and goes ahead and looks in it. So, it is kind of a heavy bag, so Zen really should have thought it through before throwing it at Rill specifically. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a little heavy, but not like unmanageable. And in it, there are some potions and some other things that might be useful. So there's four healing potions, a healer's kit, 25 gold, 
four rations, some rope, some camping gear, some torches. Okay, but is is the healing potions, is it code red, voltage, blue, or sprite? Well, blue is mana potions. Everyone knows oh. that. Oh, you're right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, I guess is it, it, so it's cherry slushy flavor. It's cherry slushy flavor. Fuck yes. <laughs> None of that fruit punch shit. <laughs> so is this per person or total? Total. Okay. So we have to divvy up everything then yeah or one of you could hold on to it until yeah i mean i think we're good for now um because we're not in danger yet (laughs) i hope not Uh, i mean you know who knows (laughs) so linda can hold on to it if you'd like yes since she's like the responsible grown-up yes real is still eating the cookies what kind of cookies are they by the way they are chocolate chip cookies oh fantastic (laughs) because it's hard to get better than a good chocolate chip cookie honestly it's true both linda and ziva think that that is true okay so 25 gold four healing potions a healer's kit and what were the other ones four rations four rations rope torches and some basic camping equipment okay so uh Dorka, is the camping equipment a D&D item, or is that something we should just, like, assume that we have? It's just something you should assume you have. Okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna put it on my character sheet as bedrolls, because that's easy. I will leave it up to you what exactly camping equipment means. As long as it's not one of those, like, Harry Potter tents that has, like, a jacuzzi okay. inside. Yeah, no, that's fine. So then I have one more question, and this is a not-in-character question. Do we have other equipment for our characters, or do we sort of assume that we don't have anything? Uh, you can have other equipment for your characters. I think we have, like, the starting gear or whatever. Yeah. Okay, great. So I'll keep, like, rations and stuff, like, reasonable, but then, like, there's some stuff that I should already have. Okay, great. Sounds good. You have your care package. You have your mission. Let's go. Linda's pumped. She cannot wait to meet lizard people and Zephyrine and maybe more cool sick-ass demons and um, unicorns and big cats and, like, whatever there is. She's ready. Hell, uh, uh, and then Ro will just follow Linda, I think. <laughs> Zen's chatter follows you into the blackness, bidding you farewell as the void envelops you. It feels like a glove around your whole body, with water pressing against it, as the space seems to both unmake and reshape you. It all happens in an instant, and then you materialize on an unforgiving mountainside, a sprawling town laid out in the valley just below you. Next time on the Eternity Archives. Before you know it, you are coming up on the ramshackle walls of this small town. Well, this is definitely more than 200 people must be some kind of quest or something in town fucking tourists you're not here for the treasure are you uh i mean i don't even know what the treasure is in this tavern there's a small group of adventurers that hasn't set out yet is there any chance you've seen our friend he's a relatively distinct looking fella the constable came and uh took him off i'll just pick a room and try to pick the lock Adventurers, I bring to you the great tales of Linda the Bard. The Eternity Archives is hosted, produced, and edited by Dorka, Kite, and Ziva. 
find us on Twitter at at the archives pod or online at theeternityarchives.com. Our intro music is Paint the Sky by Hans Adam, and sound effects are obtained from zapsplat.com. Check out our show notes for more info and some helpful Dungeons & Dragons resources. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe to the Eternity Archives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. Consider supporting us by telling your friends about us, or leave us a tip at our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash theeternityarchives. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.